Hello and welcome to the Local Government Leaders podcast from Public Intelligence and the MJ. My name's Mike Bennett. Today's podcast is a special uh, edition brought to you from the SIPFA conference in Manchester. Uh, the podcast contains really a series of interviews, conversations, vox pops with speakers and delegates from the conference. And I hope it captures, um, I suppose, some interesting snapshots from the event. Some of the conversations are related. There are a number of themes uh, run through the conference and run through the, the conversations. But really it is a, a series of spontaneous discussions rather than a highly edited package. But I hope in any case that it gives you an overview of some of the content and also an insight into the atmosphere uh, among delegates. The formal theme of the conference was people, place and prosperity preparing for Brexit Britain. So obviously some of the conversations uh, in the podcast deal with the outcome of the referendum, what Brexit might mean, uh, as well as uh, the impact of the recent general election. Uh, but people were also talking about uh, austerity, uh, about local authorities' moves to become more commercial, something for which they had been criticised heavily in the day before the conference uh, in articles in the Times newspaper, but also lots of conversations about health and social care integration, combined authorities, uh, better use of public assets, uh, and the rise of uh, artificial intelligence and what uh, that's going to mean for the future of the economy and public services. Some of the interviews uh, are with speakers from the plenaries, from speakers from workshops, um, with delegates in uh, breaks between sessions um, and also there is a, an interview with Rob Whiteman, the chief executive of SIPFA and importantly with Andrew Burns, the new president of the Institute. So uh, that's all to come and the first interview on the podcast is with uh, the contributors to the first plenary which was uh, very stimulating and well received in the hall. Uh, and the contributors were Andrew Lillico, Director and Principal of Europe Economics, Grace Blakely from IPPR North, and Philip Collins, who's a columnist on The Times. They covered a range of different strategic issues following Brexit, uh, the political environment, um, and some explanations about uh, voting behaviour in the North. But I caught up with them immediately after their session and be began by asking Andrew Lillico to expand on his analysis of what he calls the AI revolution. Sure, so I identified a number of ways that the AI revolution, uh, as I uh, called it, mm. might, might change things. So you've got the possibility of um, uh, impacts on public finance itself through perhaps AI models of auditing. Uh, you've got changes from perhaps artificial intelligence uh, via wearable tech affecting health uh, diagnoses of various sorts. But probably much the largest is those related to uh, changes in transport, particularly the use of autonomous vehicles. So uh, I think that we will find that autonomous vehicles lead to a transformation in city spaces. Uh, you will need to reconfigure them, you'll chase the human drivers out, uh, the driverless cars will drive at much faster speeds, you'll have uh, interleaving intersections eliminating all your roundabouts, uh, you will have uh, a shift towards sharing economy models instead of the ownership, personal ownership of cars, that will cause about 80% of cars to be gone uh, and remove most of the parking uh, issues uh, in city areas, that will free up lots of space on the sides of roads and things like car parks and drives and so on will also be freed up in different ways. So that will cause an, an enormous change in the way that uh, city centres are configured. And you also connected that to where people might live in the future economic development and uh, future migration patterns and you raised the idea of a regional passport. Uh, correct. So one of the things that Brexit might allow us to do is to direct where migration occurs in the country. So although there has been an increase in the population in the UK, the vast majority of that is focused on a corridor running down from Manchester through Birmingham into London and a little bit further south. Um, for many parts of the UK, there hasn't been any population increase at all. Northern Ireland has no higher a population than it did in 1841. Scotland only slightly higher than in 1901. So if you could uh, uh, allow people into the country on the basis that they located in certain areas, uh, that could be a way of um, uh, encouraging regional economic development. 
there's another aspect of that as well. So as well as locating those who come internationally, you might find that regional economic development also takes the form of trying to attract the most globally mobile, high-value individuals. We're familiar with that at a, an international level, software engineers, financial professionals, lawyers and so on being attracted to one country or another. I think that that might in the future happen at the local authority level as well. So instead of attracting businesses to locate into your area, you'll have uh, some uh, combination of quality of life, nightlife or whatever, or green spaces or peace and quiet mm. that will attract different sorts of highly mobile, uh, uh, high-value uh, individuals to locate into your area and then that will be the locus of prosperity for, for your local uh, economic development. I then turned to Grace Blakely from IPPR North who had said in her presentation that uh, the vote for Brexit was as much against Westminster as it was uh, against Brussels. And I asked her whether she found Andrew's idea of a local prospectus for the North realistic. Um, yeah, well, I mean, we hope so. It, in terms of whether or not it's realistic, we hope that in light of the kind of developments in terms of um, uh, regional mayors, that that will be something that they kind of take up, the mantle that they kind of take up, um, perhaps as over the next couple of years, central government bears less interest in, in the Northern Powerhouse and in, in what goes on at the local level. Mm. Um, in terms of that being a vote uh, kind of against Westminster, um, uh, the points I made in my presentation were effectively that the North's kind of seen a, a, a secular decline in its traditional industries mm. that to a, a certain extent was replaced by public sector employment. Um, but since austerity, it, you know, those, those gaps that really started to open up not really like open up kind of 100 years ago, but really started to accelerate in the 1980s, have started to really kind of take their toll. Um, and the North, in terms of the Brexit vote, was it was really a kind of a vote against being continuously ignored, which it has been for such a long time, not just by kind of, you know, Tory governments in the 80s, but by, to a large extent, um, New Labour governments after that. Uh, and in many ways, the Northern Powerhouse was the first Thing, the government initiative that people have seen um, that, you know, if not affected their lives, then at least said it was going to affect their lives. Yeah. Um, so I think our task for the next kind of however long this parliament lasts will be to kind of take back that northern powerhouse um, rhetoric mm. and really make sure that it actually has an impact on people's lives. So rather than just saying grow now, redistribute later mm. or, um, you know, just grow the economy, focus on attracting businesses, start thinking about how we can invest in people, invest in skills, um, ensure that people actually really notice a difference when it comes to their, their local place um, and ensure that there's the kind of the funding and investment there that's able to back that up. Thanks. Phil Collins from The Times. You said that George Osborne was perhaps one of the most important figures in the history of local government. Yeah, it's a big claim, isn't it? Um, I made it for two reasons. One is that there been, has been a big shift of power. The Northern Powerhouse is a real thing. And the creation of mayors uh, in Manchester, Birmingham, really does give an opportunity for a new power centre. And I, I thoroughly welcome that. And I think it could be really quite transformative. If you get good people, Andy Burnham in Manchester, Andy Street in Birmingham, who take that on. Um, it could, over 15, 20 years, really alter the political landscape. At the same time, the decisions taken in George Osborne's first budget to set the spending um, plans where he did were, for, for good or ill, really difficult for local government because protecting pensions and the NHS, as he did at that time, meant that inevitably the greater part of the burden fell on local government financing. And so to do a major political change of that kind at the same time as drastically reducing budget was a really hard thing to do. Mm. So Osborne has been both a, a, a figure of, of great merit in the, in the sector, but also probably the villain at the same time. Mm. Thanks very much for joining the Sitford podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much. So I'm very pleased to be joined by the Chief Executive of SIPFA, Rob Whiteman. Hi Rob, welcome to the podcast. Hello Mike, thanks very much, nice to see you. So, um, what's special about SIPFA Conference? SIPFA Conference is special because we have a really good mixture of high quality thinking. Um, I would say this, wouldn't I? We don't go so much for high profile speakers, although they are good things. Yeah. We don't go for the biggest politicians of the day. We go for people that are going to inspire people to think a bit. Really high quality thinking. The commentators, the writers, the thinkers in public finance who can most help the audience to think about what comes next and interact with them. And I think SIFA has a very special feeling. And people that do all the conferences always say to me, I'm not just saying it, Rob, because you're SIT for Chief Executive, but I really enjoy SIT for Conference because it's not just a parade of speakers. 
actually there's some thought gone into what's the theme and what's their contribution to that thinking. And so the theme for, uh, for the conference this year is people, place, prosperity, preparing for Brexit Britain, of course. Yes. What else could we be talking about? And we've just had the first session with three really interesting speakers. What did you, what struck you most? I think what struck me most was there is no political certainty. The general election means that the government can't act in effect. And actually, the House of Commons is likely to know what it doesn't like, but it's unlikely to know what it does like. And so probably Theresa May's settlement before the election of Brexit does mean leaving the single market, it does mean leaving the customs union. I think we've got a pretty strong sense that the House of Commons might not find that acceptable, but neither has the House of Commons got a clear view mm. on what it will find acceptable. And so for leaders in the public service, we're going to have to find our way through post-Brexit Britain against a very, very difficult context where it's hard to read what's going to happen next politically or economically. Philip Collins from The Times was saying that uh, not only was there a, a power vacuum at the top of the Conservative Party, at the top of the government uh, because of the election result, but also the Labour Party was literally in two minds. Yeah. Uh, and that had been a strategic success in a way, but it, it does mean that there isn't a clear agenda or programme or, or strategy really about where we're going to, where Brex what Brexit means yet. Yeah, I thought he was really interesting, actually, because, of course, he was, he was Tony Blair's guy, and he said, to some extent, Corbyn played a political blinder in that whether you were a Remainer or a Lever, you felt you could vote Labour because you didn't know what their position was mm. on Brexit, and that was electorally very successful. And I thought it was interesting that he put the question to us, so what happens in the next election? Is it likely now that actually we won't settle Brexit in two years? Mm. We'll leave the EU with a transitional deal, some sort of Norway-style deal, mm. with all the agreements and all the hard work and all the heavy lifting to be deferred till after the election. And then what would happen in an election? What would the position of the parties be? You probably couldn't look both ways, yeah. as, as he says he thought the Labour Party did. Yeah. But actually, what would the Conservatives, the Labour Party and the Lib Dems say about what a post-transitional arrangement should look like? Mm. And I think, you know, we had, a, we had a, a referendum a year ago and we thought that would settle matters. Yeah. Far from it. Yeah. This may be an open issue. It's a binary question to an open it's, issue. <laughs> it's a binary question, exactly, yeah. uh, Mike. And, um, and it's why referendums aren't a good idea. Mm. They, they ask a binary question to a, to a complex issue. But this is going to be with us for five years more now. At it's least, not going to yeah. be settled in two years. Yeah. And so Phil was saying that it, uh, what improved the Labour Party score was bringing new people on board. Yeah. Grace from IPPR uh, was saying that people voted... Uh, people in the north yeah. um, voted not just against Brussels but against Westminster, yeah. um, uh, uh, and that they hadn't been, uh, they hadn't yeah. benefited from GDP that everybody. I was, love that quote. Everybody was talking about it's not our GDP. It's not our GDP because they, they'd never benefited. From yeah. It. So, so that's um, so. What does that mean in terms of? Um, uh, regional policy, local government policy going forward, it's just not on the agenda? Well, two things here. I, I think regional policy, the graphs that we were shown on transport infrastructure spending is primarily in London. Yeah. Um, and indeed, if you think of HS2, would probably help the London economy more than it may help uh, the northern economies. Uh, actually, that clearly is unacceptable to large parts of the country, and I thought her quote that the public voted as much against Westminster as it voted against Brussels was right. And I, I agree with all of that. I think it also begs the question, what information are, is public institutions giving and is it actually what the public want to know and what resonates with them? I loved her quote about it's not our GDP. It reminded me of the economist Joseph Stigelitz of Columbia University who said there's no point economists telling people in the Rust Belt that the economy's growing because they say my income's in real terms fallen over the last 10 years. Yeah, yeah. So actually as experts, as leaders, as finance professionals or chief executives, we give information to the public. Are we giving the right information? Are we giving information that resonates with them about how they feel about yeah. public institutions? Are we, are we talking about their issues? Should we, is there enough information on homelessness, age, uh, age inequality and the lack of equity, all the, all the, everything we've just heard? Mm. The young student, the student from the Northwest region who stood up mm. and said, my brother, my brother works 
two jobs seven days a week in London in order to rent a flat the size of a prison cell, I've got no hope of acquiring assets. Yeah. And the speaker uh, who said, actually, inequality isn't about where some people earn more than other people. Inequality is your right to acquire or your ability to acquire yeah. assets. And that's what we lack in our society. I thought it was a really stimulating session. It was a very stimulating session. And do you think, uh, in terms of experts, we talk too often uh, in utilitarian terms about averages or aggregates, and we don't, have, we don't differentiate that data to show what the picture, how the picture changes? Uh, yeah, in different parts of the I think country. the trouble is we we work in in for institutions which basically can produce the information that justifies their argument, um, and I think that's particularly true of of central government. I mean, in the past, areas like local government uh, had independent figures verified by people like the Audit Commission in order that you couldn't just make up the numbers that suited your performance. And actually, I think local government has lost a little bit that there isn't that verifiable information about its performance as a sector. Government essentially can make up the numbers it wants in order to argue that its policy is going in the right direction, which now means the public don't believe anything they're told. Mm. And it's as simple as that. And we are going to have to stand up and be counted and speak truth to power that we've got to give the right information, not the most convenient information. The other voice in the panel, um, Andrew Lillico, uh, pro-Brexit uh, speaker, gave a very, very interesting uh, talk drawing together um, uh, migration, yeah. economic development, artificial intelligence. And I suppose one of the themes was how th these factors might, how artificial intelligence and local uh, passports mm. might combine to change population density, travel to work patterns, where people might live mm. in the country, opening up a, a, a whole, a very different vista about what the future might look like and how to tackle some of these ingrained social issues. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I, I liked his, uh, the work that he'd uh, done, which says that um, in 15 years time, uh, there'll only be about 20% of the vehicles on the road that there are now yeah. because, of course, when there are driverless vehicles, you and I will hop to work yeah. in a driverless vehicle because the app will tell us that it's coming down our street. 60 mile an hour in, <laughs> in London. And, and average <laughs> speed will in therefore London, be quicker because yeah. junctions will go. And, in fact, yeah. I think we know, don't we, that a lot of councils have run some quite interesting experiments over the years, some sort of European-style traffic management systems where yeah. you get rid of traffic lights and all controls and everybody finds their way through and average speeds do increase and therefore pollution yeah. uh, decrease. I thought his, his contribution was, cha uh, was really challenging about how public services will be ch changed by artificial intelligence and new technology. I thought his points about regionalism that actually Canada has a regional migration system so that you can go and work or live in one part of Canada but that doesn't necessarily give you rights to the other be very interesting to see if that develops here because the SNP for example mm. you know a Scottish government wants more migration at a time when a UK government may be ending free movement and trying to reduce it. And given your background in the Home Office, your yeah. insight to uh, immigration policy, yeah. can you imagine combined authorities uh, running differential uh, immigration policies? Well, I suppose I can't quite imagine the Home Office agreeing to it. Um, and it's interesting, actually. Uh, I've, we have a very centralised view of what government does and that everything must be the same. Mm. I remember once when I was at the Home Office being in a very interesting debate in Washington about whether migration is a federal issue or a state's issue. And actually, what job is it of the federal government? The state's right should be choosing immigration policy. And of course, uh, many cities in the states are holding out against Trump's travel ban. So we forget that we have this view that sort of the mother of all parliaments, as I always say, is a very overweening mother. <laughs> and sort of does, you know, and really dominates the child. And, and actually, there are lots of countries in the world that can run a differential immigration system. We could do so here if we so chose. Uh, it, it sort of cuts across the view of what, what's local, what's regional, um, what's, um, and what's national. And I guess, Mike, what came from all the speakers this morning is a sense that George Osborne 
is sort of the elephant in the room in that he no, may no longer be chancellor, but he set two things in motion which are profound. One was austerity, and that's undoubtedly affecting our politics. But for the longer term, he's created regional mayors and combined authorities and things like Devo Mank. Who would have thought a chancellor of the Exchequer would devolve the NHS to the northwest? And actually, uh, uh, if you're in Germany, you pay most of your taxes in a way that they're divided between the lender, the state parliaments, and the federal government. Uh, and, and we have got into the habit of just thinking that everybody does it like Britain. We have the most centralised system, and maybe combined authorities and mayors are the biggest policy change we'll see in our lifetime, but it's so early we don't quite see it yet. Yeah. And one of the consequences of austerity is that uh, local authorities are uh, looking for different investment opportunities. Yeah. Uh, away from equities and bonds and into commercial property. The Times uh, did sit for a favour yesterday by running a high-profile story that created a great mm. uh, start uh, to the conference. Uh, I suppose general, gen general view on that. I mean, I suppose one reflection I've got is, um, you know, if you've got a 50-year loan from the Public uh, Works Loan Board and you've got a 20-year uh, lease with BP, I don't. Uh, does that seem a high risk to you? Well, yeah, that's that's the point, isn't it? Um, look, on the good side. We have a permissive framework for unlimited borrowing, which I think the Treasury will allow us to keep. But remember, there was a long time when we didn't have it. We had capital controls and we had to apply for all our capital. Treasury and the government doesn't mind local authorities having unlimited borrowing, so long as they meet the Prudential Code test in order to improve services. They don't mind local authority borrowing for regeneration and renewal. Uh, and local authorities' role in development. Yeah, Treasury's got a real problem with local authority borrowing in that third category of purely for commercial purposes. They're getting huge complaints from the property market that we're distorting the market by buying up so much property. And of course, Treasury is asking the question, well, you're buying up retail parks for rental income. Actually, those retail parks might not have a future in 20 years' time when internet shopping has taken them off the map. And there are some parts of the country where that land will have development value, but there are parts where it won't. And there's a big concern that authorities are taking commercial risks for the longer term, where at the moment it looks very attractive to borrow and invest commercially for rental income, but it might not work over the whole lifetime. What SIPFA will do is, through the Prudential Code, we will set a higher bar for purely commercial borrowing. And, I, and the way I describe this to people, Mike, is, look, there's a very rigorous arrangement that you have to have, have in place in order to manage your pension funds with independent advice and, and governance. Uh, there's very rigorous governance in place for treasury management. You have to put the code up to council. Officers act within the parameters set within the code uh, according to sit for guidance. Uh, actually, a lot of these commercial decisions are being made with very scant and limited governance and little independent advice. Most councils are getting it right. They're making good commercial decisions. They are getting independent advice. They know what they're doing. However, we will tighten up the system, particularly for disproportionate borrowing, where it really does look like the, the, the authority is borrowing sums out of kilter with the rest of their budget without thinking about the due effects in the medium and long term. And I think unless the sector, and essentially the Prudential Code is the sector regulating itself through SIPFA with the agreement of Treasury, I think unless we tighten the code, we run the risk of losing it. Thanks very much, Rob. Have a great conference. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome to the SIPFA podcast. Thanks for speaking to me. Hi, it's uh, Peter Kane. I'm uh, Chamberlain of the City of London and a SIPFA council member and have now just joined the board. Great. So, what did you think of this morning's session? We were hearing uh, about Britain after Brexit. I, I thought it was great. It built on a, a very warm welcome from Andy Burns, as our new uh, president, who uh, I think really hit the, some of the key themes at the moment about working, looking at thinking about financial management still against the backdrop of uh, austerity and Brexit. But he was a half glass half full man and showed actually there are things we can do yeah. positively. I think the, the next session with the three speakers was excellent, a great contrast. I think Phil Collins gave some interesting insights into the 
political world and what's like to happen, basically no one knows. Huge mm. uncertainty, so we yeah. have to work with that. Uh, local government might not be the top of the government's agenda at the moment. A key message, though, I think there's still a lot we can do that we don't have to wait for government to act. We don't need legislation, so we need to be working locally to do the things, learning from each other and making things happen. And combined authorities, uh, uh, obviously not a, a London issue at the moment, although. Yep. Uh, but do you see that having a big impact? Well, I think so, and, and Andy Burnham here in Manchester is well-placed to really make a difference. There's a strong political consensus and a strong uh, belief in the ability to make a difference. Manchester is role model, really, a lot of what a devolution is about. Uh, fantastically creative. They've got an international festival here going on at the moment. It's combining culture, business, and the offer is amazing. And that's now been shared in Andy Street in West Midlands. What we heard is he's obviously uh, on the Conservative ticket, but he's working closely with Labour colleagues in the area. So there's a real sense they want to make a different come together and join together service in a way we haven't seen before. And for those people who haven't come this year, what's the best bit about being at SIPFA conference? It's the networking. It's meeting up with people you've seen before, catching up on uh, what's happening, what are the issues at the moment, but also meeting new people and finding out what are their challenges. I think that's that's the thing that SIPFA can really do. It's that informal networking and uh, we're stronger together. And final question, what does the Chamberlain do in the City of London? <laughs> Chamberlain is the oldest public finance job in the country, if not the world. dates back to 12... 37. You're not as old so, as that. I'm not as old. I'm number 80. <laughs> <laughs> so at its heart, it is the financial director, but also for commercial and other But I also give out the Freedom Award, the Freedom of the City of London, which is a great honour, great privilege, and part of our history. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> Welcome to the SIP podcast. SIP podcast, brilliant. You're enjoying uh, a waffle? <laughs> Certainly am, lovely. It? It's delicious. Is that the best thing about the SIPFA conference so far? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if you've got enough cream on your waffle. Actually. No, I think I need some more. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you make of this morning's session? Yeah, it was very useful, yeah. Yeah? <laughs> what did you take from it? Um, I think, I feel like it was very informative about the Brexit um, and the economy. And I sort of found out things that I haven't really thought about previously okay yeah yeah. it's very useful yeah so apart from the waffles why are you what are you looking for from SIPFA conference meeting new people uh yeah just taking part in the podcast networking yeah yeah thanks a lot for your time thank Thank you you. all right cheers cheers okay now I'm very pleased to be speaking to. Would you introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Tim Porfu, and I'm from the London Bar of Ealing on the Finance Grad Scheme. Now, you've just been introduced to me as the famous one. Why is he so famous? Because he's got his face on the SIPFA board, massive, and the SIPFA magazine right here. So uh, that is that is fame. Yeah, um, it's it's a bit yeah, it's a strange feeling, but it's pretty good. It's nice to you know see myself um, representing. Sit for, um, yeah. So yeah, and it's been a good, good conference so far. Yeah. And yeah, good year. So what 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 are Sit for students? Okay, so Sit for students, um, we're like um, basically the ground roots of uh, public sector uh, finance. So what we essentially do is we go through the Sit for qualification, learning. Um, or the basic fundamentals of um, public sector finance. And then we also get technical experience within the workplace that complements our study. And I think that's why this is a really good scheme because it's creating leaders for the future. And you can tell from how the grad scheme is set up, it's really building on that. Good, great. And are you from Ealing as well? No, I'm from Westminster City Council. My name's Halima Detinji and I'm from Westminster City Council. And I am in my first year of training right. on the SIPFA as well. So. Good. Enjoying it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a bit <laughs> challenging. Yeah, challenging? Yeah, loving yeah, it. yeah, loving it. Yeah, it's a bit challenging, but I like that because yeah. it's like um, in sort of this economic slash political climate, it's like you get to get involved with not just the college stuff, but also what's happen- happening strategically and stuff like that. So um, it's, it's eye-opening, really. So, yeah. Yeah. so this is the first SIPFA conference you've been at? Um, yeah, actually, no, I went to the SIP for dinner yeah. in like um, September, October time. Okay. But yeah, this is the first proper conference I've been yeah. to, yeah. And what's, what, are you, 
you've been at the sessions this morning? Yes, I have. I went to um, the main auditorium ones, okay. I think. So, yeah. So, what did you make of it? I think it was quite good. It was quite good to hear the different perspectives, like from um, IPPR, I think it was. Yeah. Um, to yeah, it's just really, really eye-opening to hear the different perspective on why people voted and all that as well. Mm. So, and moving forward as well, which is quite important. Lessons learned. Yeah. And so the president's themes are around <coughs> medium-term financial planning, yeah. collaboration, yeah. <laughs> digital AI. Yeah, AI. Yeah, what's, how's, how's digital impacting on, on what you do? Um, I think digital, at the moment, I'm not really too sure, but I think going forward it will really care, uh, play like a big part mm. because what we're experiencing is um, a lot of data has been thrown away, so we need to be able to you know, get tools yeah. that we are able to develop um, you know, great models to predict um, for the future. After speaking to the SIPFA students, I was able to catch up with the speakers after the second plenary. And I began by asking Niall Dixon, Chief Executive of NHS Confederation, to give us an overview of his speech. Well, I think the first issue is around the funding of our healthcare system. And everybody acknowledges the enormous contribution that the health and the care system have made over the last few years, massive increases in efficiency, and actually being much more resilient than we thought it would be. But I think we are reaching a point where we have to recognize the levels of pressure that are now within the system. And we want to have a wider national conversation about what levels of funding are required. Alongside that, there is an absolute recognition, I think, throughout the health service and indeed throughout local government, that we can't go on with the system as it was, both in terms of the, the, the ridiculous divisions which we've had within health itself and between health and local government. We have to overcome those to provide an integrated service, not least because the big challenge of the future is large numbers of elderly people in particular with a mass of comorbidities who need need help to be supported in their own homes and to keep them as healthy as possible rather than seeing them pulled into the acute sector. And we need to change the way in which we incentivize the system and the way that we run the system in order to achieve that. And I think progress is, I'm quite optimistic, progress is beginning to be made. But I think we have to recognize a lot of this is down to local relationships and those take quite a long time to build up. Do you think we'll make more progress in the next 10 years than we've made in the last 10 years in terms, we have, of, we have in to terms make, of integration? We have, to make, we have to make an awful lot more progress in the next 10 years. And I think we are starting, the beginnings of the framework are there. There's lots of uncertainty around, not least in the political environment. But I think we, we genuinely are facing uh, a, a real uh, danger unless we move towards this over the next two or three years. Jim Mackey, NHS Improvement. P pick out some, some of the main points from your talk, please. So the, the, the main things I was talking about was the, uh, the NHS and public service generally, uh, local authorities specifically as well, have de delivered huge amounts of efficiency and really transformed in the last few years. And we're trying to encourage people to work in a more integrated and system way. Um, so I was just giving some examples of how that might be done and, um, and where the finance profession can particularly help and SIFA members specifically in, in, in helping people through that. And through the discussion there, we just thought we're, yeah, there's some important points about cap and infrastructure investment, the differences of accounting uh, treatment and mechanisms across the different sectors. And they get in the way, don't and they? And how they get in the way, yeah. yeah. Uh, and one of the themes of the conference is uh, Brexit, mm -hmm. uh, or after after Brexit. Uh, what's, what's, what's the biggest impact of Brexit on, uh, on the NHS? Is it mainly around uh, recruitment and retention? Yeah, the main concern is about the workforce. We're yeah. very heavily dependent, as we've always been, on international uh, recruitment and uh, very specialised people or people working at all kinds of levels, working in and out of our system from different parts of the world, and we need to embrace those, those people and make them feel secure and valued. And is it possible for the UK to produce more nurses or more doctors? I think it's possible, but we need to actually accept and confront that and get on with it um, rather than avoiding it all the time. We've been avoiding it most of the time I've been in the NHS mm. and you see in the real shortage of supply now. I think the economics are such that it's actually better value to over uh, overproduce than underproduce. But there's a reluctance to invest? 
Yeah, I think I think in a constrained environment, it's hard for people to see the business case. I, mean, I think collectively, we need to make the business case. Uh, so things that you would spend much less on locum and agency staff. Yeah. Uh, weekend working would be easier. It'd be easier to transform models of care if you had a, a greater supply of people. And there's a productivity impact of having a shortage of supply when you don't actually know who's going to turn up for the next shift. Great. Thanks so much for your time. Thank Cheers. You. Thanks. Thanks. I'm now delighted to be joined by Andrew Burns, who's Director of Finance and Resources at Staffordshire County Council, and also the newly elected President of SIPFA. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, delighted to have the, have the chance to talk to you. Now, we're just talking on stage uh, at the end of uh, one of the plenary sessions. There's some background noise, people chatting, people chatting away. Um, but uh, you've, you've uh, just addressed a conference, and for people who weren't here, perhaps you could just um, give a quick summary of your main themes that you'll be pursuing during your presidency. Yeah, OK. Th- thank you. Uh, I think three themes uh, I've, I've decided to focus on. Uh, and it's typical for SIPA presidents to have that opportunity to, to, to think about their own themes. The first one for me is about the importance of medium-term financial planning in order to ensure resilience and sustainability. Uh, and that's always been an issue, I think, for public authorities. But the emphasis I want to bring is about making sure we think about balance sheets and capital investment programmes, not just revenue budgets, to ensure they are all aligned. Because often... The medium term requires investing today to have benefits for the future. And in the context of fewer resources, actually public authorities need to use their own balance sheets to make sure they're working harder and smarter to improve public outcomes and public services, not rely on funding sources from somewhere else. So that's the first one. Uh, The second one uh, is about uh, better uh, alignment and collaboration between public service agencies in local places. Uh, Use an example in Staffordshire, we have a county council, eight districts, uh, a city council, uh, six clinical commissioning groups, four hospital trusts, so quite a lot of public institutions. uh, And whilst we have worked together uh, in part, I think we can do much more about joining ourselves up more effectively because citizens don't recognise which organisation provides which services. So that better alignment and collaboration, I think, is is an important theme. And the second part of that one is... Is, is what SIPFA call integrated reporting, i.e. focusing on the value created by public investment, not just managing the financial outcomes and counting the, counting the pounds. That's my second theme. The third one then, a bit different, and that's about thinking about artificial intelligence and big data and what that might mean for both the accountancy profession and public services. So how can we exploit the potential that AI uh, gives and big data gives to ensure we can improve public financial management and make sure the professions can respond to those uh, to those challenges in a way which sees the opportunities. There's lots of talk about you know, jobs being redundant as a consequence of automation and AI and that might indeed be the case but equally there'll be opportunities to do different sorts of jobs particularly emphasising the more human empathetic type dimensions and uh, to, to, to public service roles. So I think they're the, they're the three key themes that I'd want to focus on, uh, mention at the conference, and actually uh, over the course of the year, that's what I'll be talking about as I go around the country. And those three themes are definitely part of the sort of public finance zeitgeist, aren't they? Because uh, they've been picked up already uh, during this morning's... So actually quite encouraged that actually in each of those sort of themes, uh, various speakers have spoke about them. So in the last NHS session with uh, Jim Mackey and Nal Dixon, they were talking about how the lack of ability to invest in capital in the NHS is potentially stifling transformational investment. So I think councils can do that. We need to be able to do more of that. Uh, in the earlier session about post-Brexit Britain, uh, uh, I think there was discussion about the benefits and potential of artificial intelligence. So uh, quite timely, quite topical, uh, hopefully, that those things were, were picked up. Uh, and I think they are issues that uh, certainly councils and public authorities are grappling with now. Uh, and I think the challenges ahead of us with austerity, as you say, uh, and with rising public expectations and demands mean that we need to think of those as solutions, not, uh, not problems. And do you think there is a solution to integration between the NHS and social care? Do you think we can make more, pro- more progress in the next 10 years than we have in the last 10? I think certainly there's a need for more progress. I think one of the things that we need to get better at is investing in improving health and well-being, not just funding illness and care. Uh, there's a statistic which I think is broadly accurate, which is about 80% of NHS spend is on people in the final year of their life. And of course you want to have dignified final days, whoever that might be before, you know, your family, your friends, etc. 
but actually that can't be an efficient way of investing money in that so much of it actually on illness and care I think has got to be part of the financial sustainability plan and doing that in local places because the needs of a place in London is different than it is in Manchester is different to Staffordshire or anywhere else so I think health and care will need to be joined up uh, and I think probably a bit differently in different parts of the country. It's really good to hear examples from Northumbria that Jim Mackey uh, m mentioned, some real good local solutions there, which aren't designed in Westminster or Whitehall, are designed on the ground in place, a place like Northumbria, and is obviously making a positive difference. Yesterday in one of the newspapers, um, there was a, a news story about uh, the, the extent to which local authorities are investing in commercial property. Uh, what was your take on, on that story? Yeah, well, I think at one level, I'm, I'm always pleased there's, there's coverage of a lot of government issues in, in, in the national sort of press. It's a good start for the it, conference. Ab absolutely, An yeah. Opportunity. And it gave me a chance to mention that in my presentation earlier on. I think, firstly, it's not, it's not new. This issue is not new. Uh, economic development schemes with that rely on commercial rental uh, income aren't new. Uh, and well-run councils have been doing that for a very, very long time. Uh, but I think it's a good question because it, it, no, in the eyes of the public that might look odd or strange that councils are doing this sort of thing, particularly if the, the size of the investment looks like it's much bigger than the organisation making it. Uh, I think SIPFA's response uh, is one where we need to be able to explain why councils are doing this, not just what they are doing. We have a, a really good framework through our potential code which governs the way we invest in capital to make sure it's affordable and sustainable and I think we need to make sure we, we're clear about that. But I think what these, this example uh, does is make, make us... Uh, think again and look a bit harder about making sure we're clear and transparent about why we're doing what we're doing uh, and maybe there's a higher bar around transparency there's a higher bar about making sure we have appropriate independent and expert advice and also there's an issue about making sure it's proportionate so if you are investing uh, in a commercial asset to just generate a revenue income stream now that f that, that sort of fits in terms of the relative size and scale of your organization so i welcome the debate uh, and, and discussion I really hope that we're able to maintain the potential code because I think it's a really good example of self-regulation which has enabled councils to invest and actually has enabled councils to do what the NHS, as we spoke earlier, mm. isn't able to do, invest capital in transformation to generate benefits, for, revenue benefits for the future. That's something that the NHS might think of following, it sounded Well, like. I think Jim Mackey in his response said that should be something that they would want to try and yeah. look at. Now, currently, I think there are national allocations of capital funding and revenue funding for the NHS, which are heavily focused in, uh, in, in, in the weight of revenue. Uh, I think we need to create the resources to enable more capital investments. And actually, if there's health and care integration, uh, maybe local councils can fund some of the capital investment, provided they get some of the share of the revenue benefits that fall in NHS organisations. That would be a really good example of uh, getting my two, two themes together, the medium-term planning and collaboration, investing in capital assets to, to improve revenue outcomes for both the health and social care. Now, you're a conference veteran. I don't know how many of these you'll have been at. <laughs> yeah, I think this is my... Uh, uh, I think it's my tenth SIPFA conference. I think. I think uh, I've done. Uh, I've done most of them. In, certainly since I became director of finance and resources at, at Staffordshire County Council. Uh, so it's my tenth. Yes. And one of the uh, interesting things about SIPFA conferences is the, the number of students there are, the number of yeah. international dele uh, delegates there are. For people who aren't here this year or who haven't been before, what, what, what do you think is unique and special? About the well, I think first and foremost, I think the content of the speakers uh, is really, really high quality. Uh, and I think that draws people here. You know, hearing you know, thought leaders, experienced practitioners, movers and shakers say stuff about matters of importance, I think is really, really important. So at its heart, we need a good quality sort of content. I mean, secondly, the opportunity to have a full range of workshops which match your specialism, I think is really important. You can come here from one part of the public sector and find something about your sector or need something else. Uh, there's something then about time and space to think. No, two days out of the office is an investment, but actually uh, the time to space to think and talk about these issues with your colleagues I think is really, really important. And finally, the networking opportunities, really, really great networks. SIPFA's been very good to me, and I've benefited hugely from my involvement with SIPFA. This is a chance to give a bit back and, and, and you know, hopefully say some things that others will benefit from this time in the way that I've heard from others in the past. So uh, I think it's an investment of in, on your time but I think it's a really valuable investment on your time. Uh, and hopefully things like this, this podcast and other sorts of you know, new media mechanisms that we have means that people who can't attend can hear a bit about it. And I would encourage people, if they're in any doubt, to think about maybe coming next year 
and I'm sure you'll be able to articulate a case to your organisation to say the benefits of this would would, would outweigh the, the the delegate costs and the cost of your of your time because you, you will learn something at SIP for conference that you can take back to your organisation which will be a benefit for them and, and for yourself. Great, thank you very much for your for your time. Uh, okay. Best of luck for the for the rest of the conference yeah. and best wishes for your coming presidential year. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I then had three brief conversations with Sarah Pearson from Zurich Municipal, Nick Jackson from Oracle, and Craig Eggleston from the LGA. I'm now joined by Sarah Pearson from Zurich Municipal. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Mike. And you've just been talking at a workshop. Can you give us a quick overview as to your contribution? Yeah, we've just been presenting at a workshop looking at commercialization in the public sector, and the title was Commercialization, It's a Risky Business. So what are the major risks that councils face when developing a more commercial approach? We probably see four thematic areas. There'd be financial risks, strategic risks, operational risks and compliance risks. And it's for each organisation to really have a look at those in detail and understand in terms of how they're positioned and how they can respond to some of those key areas. For example, the financial risk, looking at liquidity, strategic, could be looking at executive board dynamics, operational risks around governance, through to compliance risks and around the whole regulatory horizon. So many things to consider as part of the process. And you'll have seen... Um Yesterday, uh, the story about councils investing more and more in commercial property and uh, people talking about the, the risks that, they, that councils are then exposed to. What's, what's your take on that? I think it's around a measured approach to uh, investment to really understand what you're getting into, probably seeking some independent advice to help with that decision-making process, but to, to spend time up front really looking at the opportunities, but equally looking at the risks and how you're positioned as an organisation to respond. And what's the role of independent advice in that process? Well, it's just that objectivity to that investment. It's just going to give you um, that challenge, that external um, advice, um, that benchmarking that that independent expert might know from other organisations. So an opportunity to learn, really. Thank you very much, Sarah. Th thanks for your time. And I'm now joined by Nick Jackson, who's Director of Public Service Innovation at Oracle. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you, Mike. And so you've uh, just been speaking at a workshop? Yeah, I've just been chairing a really interesting workshop looking at uh, how do we um, improve integration between local government and health services to deliver you know, a single set of services in a locality. Which is, of course, one of the main problems which has dogged um, health and social care over the last 10, mm. 20 years. Do you think we'll be better at it in the next 10 years than we have been the last 10? Uh, I guess with things like the sustainability and transformation plans or projects as they're now called, um, there's, a, there's a clear ambition to, to drive that, that improvement. I think what was really interesting was the two, two examples we had, speakers we had, one from Wales and one from Plymouth. And when I broached STPs, they said, well, we've been doing this for years, guys, so, you know, catch up. Mm. Um, because austerity and uh, the demands that consumers are having it's placing the expectation that services are joined up. So they're trying to realise that ambition anyway. Yeah. And, and what, what came out of those two case studies in terms of other common success factors? So I think the sorts of things that, were, that, they, were, that they were reflecting on was really around the formal structures. So making sure you've got the governance right, making sure you've got joined up budgets that are jointly owned, um, lines of accountability are there. Um, but what we didn't talk about, but we all acknowledged, is actually probably the most important factor is that of, of trust and relationships. Mm. Um, so the real challenge, I think, going forward that was, that was uh, exposed around this is, so how do health professionals and uh, local authority professionals come together to drive that, develop that trust and drive the type of relationships that they need to actually be effective? And uh, so a lot of time has been invested, I think, in getting relationships or improving relationships over recent years, and we can obviously see the fruits of that in some places. Mm -hmm. uh, what we're hearing today from Jim Mackey in one of the um, plenaries, mm -hmm. Chief Executive of NHS Improvement, and, and he was suggesting that some of the barriers were quite technical, I suppose, about different um, uh, financial frameworks, mm -hmm. different accounting regimes, 
We talked about kind of the, the joys of trying to get a Section 75 agreement, as it's called. Um, and it was acknowledged, but the good thing is, you know, you can work, if there, if there is a will, you can work your way through this stuff, yeah. um, which I guess is Jim's message as well. But you only get that will if you've got the right kind of relationships because yes. you need to be resilient, you know, and, and work through the problems that will always be there. If you haven't got that trust, you won't have that resilience. Yeah, and that's one of the... Um, of Andy Burns's themes for mm. the president's themes this year, isn't it, about yeah. collaboration? Yeah, and I thought that, that this, again, the workshop played really well to that theme. Yeah. Um, a, a, the other angle to it, which I think also uh, reflects where Andy was coming from, is the importance of, of not thinking about this as a big national thing, but it's the local level that matters. So it was nice to have a different, we had a, a regional, as in Wales, yeah. government view, and we had yeah. a, a Plymouth City Council talking about what they're doing with their local CCG in, in Livewell, Southwest. So it's good to get that, that local perspective that, through which you drive change effectively. Yeah. And how important are systems in getting the integration right? So I think it's more a case of making sure the systems don't get in the way. Hmm. Um, so both examples, and, and I would say this with my hat on as an oracle, both examples talked about the importance of joining up the data and having consistent information. Um, and you can only do that if you've got common platform across the piece. So increasingly we're seeing as organizations are having these conversations, they are talking about, well, we can't continue with different finance, HR, performance management systems, because we need to have seamless data. So that's, that's where the system angle is, is important. So it's making sure it's a, an enabler, not a barrier. And too often it has in the past been a barrier. Our drive is to move to cloud-based technologies, and through cloud, it's much easier to have a common integrated uh, platform. Is artificial intelligence going to be important in that regard in the future? Um, so it's a question of how it's used, I think. Yeah, we talk in the finance profession that AI is going to come in and undermine a lot of the prosaic activities, particularly around the more transactional side of things. And I absolutely think that's... The, that's inevitable um, for me as a finance professional I think that's a great opportunity because frankly most of us would say the transactional stuff is pretty dull the AI value therefore is to free our time to do the more insightful stuff using the data and information that's available so we go beyond here's a dashboard to not only here's a dashboard we've actually understood what lies behind it in terms of underpinning operational performance and we got the, the ability to access the underpinning information so when you're doing your annual budget based upon a series of assumptions. You just do it, rather than being a one-off thing, you can actually track the validity of those assumptions in flight mm. and then be a much more insightful value-adding business partner, for want of another phrase. Great, thank you very much. I'll throw in a, a googly on Brexit. Um, is Brexit gonna have any impact on Oracle as a business and how you operate in the UK? Oh, you timed that beautifully. I did a talk on this only, only internally the other day. Okay. Uh, I think the key thing for us is internally, the message is you know, we assume it's just going to happen as is, and our message to clients is continue as is. What I would say from a, an Oracle point of view is, is even more with the uncertainty in terms of what shape it's going to take, it's even more important that our message around um, common platform, common infrastructure, whether that's applications or technology, that that common uh, infrastructure enables you to do different things above it in terms of whatever Brexit, the shape of Brexit is going forwards. Thank you very much for your okay. time, Nick. Thanks. You're welcome. Thank you, Mike. Down in the bowels of the conference centre, very pleased to be joined by Craig Eggleston who, uh, from, from the LGA, who runs the One Public Estate programme. Uh, Craig, you're about to be talking to a workshop. Um, do you want to give us a quick overview of what you'll be talking to them about? Yeah, sure. Um, very exciting workshop. Quite a lot going on with One Public Estate at the minute. Um, I'm coming here with an offer. We will be launching a further phase of One Public Estate very shortly, which is going to give people access to £500,000 worth of funding, some new exciting stuff with DCLG potentially. It's, it's interesting times, but it's not just about me, it's about you hearing from the people on the ground who are delivering this workshop, who are delivering One Public Estate out in the field. You're going to hear from Manchester, 
fantastic stuff around health and social care integration and regeneration. You'll hear about how finance is important to that. You'll also hear from Place Partnerships, who are part of Worcestershire County Council, who've set up an innovative property model, and that's all about making savings of public organisations working together on their assets, managing their assets collectively to make savings for the sector, for, for each of the sectors that are involved, actually. It's local, central government, wider partners. So interesting stuff. Is, and in terms of the kind of the current agenda, uh, local authorities, public bodies are uh, cash poor but quite asset rich, aren't they? They are indeed, yes. So some of the stuff that's happening in one public estate is around the being more commercial with your assets, mm. taking that. But it's also about improving public services as well. This is about not just working on your own in organisations. This is about how collectively different public organisations can work together to deliver more savings than if they operated on their own. So it's, it's taking things to the next level of, on how we can actually work better and make those savings. In one of the earlier plenaries, we were hearing from Jim Mackey, Chief Executive of NHS Improvement. Excellent. And uh, one of the <clears throat> questions was about the different financial frameworks that local authorities and NHS bodies work to. And, and there's clearly an issue there about, uh, in terms of one public estate, about clawback in terms yes. of uh, NHS um, revenue from assets that they dispose of. Yeah, interesting times on that front, especially. Um, lots going on in the health world. What we see One Public Estate as is an opportunity to build bridges between the two sectors. So we're there to give that direct support, access to ministers. We do realise this is a big issue for both sides of the table. Mm. Let's work together and use One Public Estate. Where these policies aren't working and stopping us from working together, let's look at what One Public Estate can do to help us collaborate, bring those funding streams together, look at how we access funding to deliver what we need to do. So if people are experiencing those sorts of issues on the ground, then they should be coming to you and yes. <laughs> about building relationships uh, exactly. at a kind of political policy level to try to move it forward? Yeah. I mean, what we do through One Public Estate on the smallest game is we have some revenue funding for people. We realise that different organisations have their own funding streams, access to different funding pots. What we want to do with this revenue funding is give... Um, organisations the confidence to work together. They don't have that in some places, but our funding is there to cement that relationship. Our support is there as well to cement relationships and build better links between government, local and central government, the wider public sector. That's what we're all about. Great. Thanks so much, Craig, and best of luck with the workshop. Thank you. Now, it's a pleasure to be joined by Leslie Milne from the European Commission. Hello, Leslie. Hi, good to see you. Welcome to the podcast. We're now going to just talk and walk, aren't we? Ab absolutely, as we enter into this very, very busy exhibition centre. We're going to walk through uh, the exhibition centre. People are going to look at us rather strangely. Well, But that might not change for you, I suppose. Well, normally not, but then again, you get accustomed to it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, Leslie, you've just been um, speaking to a group of SIPFA students. Well, yes, it was an invitation extended, and I think this was the second year that they had actually invited a panel of, I think, four senior managers, they called it, certainly people who had maybe been qualified for more than 15 or 20 years to yes. give us summary, not just of their experience as such, but of their more personal experiences and maybe to pass on some bon mot or some good advice to yes. the students. Yes, and so what was your, what was, what was your contribution? What was your bon mot going? Give me, give me a bon mot. Well, I, I regret to say that whilst all the others in terms of their careers were able to demonstrate and offer, um, shall we say, an opportunity for the students in either health, local government or in the, in, in the audit world, working for the European Commission, which obviously, as we are aware now, has a very limited future, uh -huh. my, my words were simply, and, and they echoed those of the other colleagues, that were broadly to the students to... Everyone is different, and that SIPFA is a very essential and useful tool, but it's only what you make it when, as a person. And that for your future careers, as far as possible, take all the opportunities that are held out to you and look to broaden your horizons and be as positive as you can. And that was, that was it. I have to Wise say, words. Well, I think as, we, as uh, we're, we're echoed by our chief executive, everyone will have their own experiences and their own experiences will be valuable to them but certainly I think for most of the 
committee who've gone through a range of different jobs, whether in one organization or changing between different organizations, they recognize that sometimes even the opportunities that they thought they'd missed or the opportunities that were closed to them initially actually indeed opened other windows or other doors and that they need not have been depressed or down because in actual fact sometimes a decision they thought was potentially negative to their career actually opened a further opportunity to them. So yeah. it was a broadly positive message for all the students. Well, that gives us a link, I suppose, to one of the themes for this conference is Britain after Brexit. Indeed. And obviously without going into the, the politics of it, um, what, what happens to British citizens who work for the European Commission after Brexit? Do we know yet? Well, the, the, the British citizens who work, definitively not. I mean, there is a, it, is, it is commonly understood in the legislation of the European Commission that technically if you are not, if you are not, if UK is not a member of the European Union, you cannot be employed by the European Commission. However, um, it is broadly expected that there will be some, uh, shall we say, relaxation of that and that those officials who are in post will at least be able to maybe see out their terms. However, like everything else, we're very early in the negotiations and I'm doubting that my career, my pension or even those of my British colleagues are going to be as high on the agenda as some of the either items that Theresa and uh, her yes. colleagues are discussing. Yes, but, but it does bring into sharp relief the, the personal impact uh, uh, of Brexit, I suppose, and what unwinding the relationship uh, is going to mean in, in, in terms for, um, for people who, who work in Brussels, I suppose. Well, I have to say, it's, uh, it is a, I mean, there are many people in the UK who would, like myself, have uh, looked at the result and felt a profound uh, sadness at the decision that was taken. I have to say that I, I had a, a dual sadness, a, I shall we say a philosophical sadness about the UK's role in Europe and the potential that I think we're maybe in the course of losing, mm. but more particularly and more selfishly in the context simply of the career that I had chosen to follow. On a more positive note. Yes, indeed. Sit for conference. Ah, well, sit for conference now, as always. How many have you, uh, you've, you've been to? I've been, a to number a, of these. I've been to a number over the years um, at a number of locations and I have to say that uh, in recent years the decision to maybe focus in London and Manchester I think is demonstrating uh, the success or the uh, essential resilience that has to be shown in these times mm. and it's allowed the people to come, continue to come together at what is an excellent uh, uh, conference, as evidence shows from this year and the number of people walking around us now, yes. it's still a popular event and it's hopefully will continue to be so. Good. Thank you for your time. Good yes, to see you again, Leslie. Pleasure, Mike. Thank, Thank you. you. So that's it for this special SIPFA conference edition of Local Government Leaders. Thanks to SIPFA and to all the speakers and the delegates who took time out to come and speak to me. Uh, my name is Mike Bennett and do subscribe via iTunes or download from SoundCloud or from the MJ website and do tune in again soon for the next Local Government Leaders podcast.